challenge, leave things better. This is Webademic, a semi-regular broadcast about the way the web is changing our lives, why we should care, and how we can act together for good. This is episode five with your host, Jeff C. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm flying solo today as one of my fellow producers and co-host, Michael Wickett, is currently away without leave. But I was going into Toshi Station to pick up some power converters. But we're extremely thrilled to have one of, if not the leading academic authorities of media and communications in the UK. While you were still learning how to spell your name, I was being trained to conquer galaxies. David Gauntlet is Professor of Media and Communications and the Co-Director of the Communication and Media Research Institute at the University of Westminster. The Institute is officially ranked as the leading center of media and communications research in the UK. David is the author of several books on media and identities and everyday creative use of digital media. David's work has been discussed in every one of the UK's national newspapers. From The Observer to The Sun, internationally in The New York Times, The Australian, and on BBC News. An extraordinarily accomplished fellow in his field, to say the absolute least, David Gauntlet. Welcome to the show. Hello, Jeff. So, your most recent book uh, I read as part of my master's studies called Making is Connecting, the social meaning of creativity from DIY knitting to YouTube and web 2.0 uh-huh. and the book, I suppose in its simplest form is about what happens when people make things and people have been making things for, I guess, forever. And yeah. you point out sort of in the introduction um, that you hope that the book would add to the conversation about the power of the internet and the web as a place where we've seen revolutionary growth and creativity flourish in recent years. Tell us a little bit more about why you made the argument making is connecting and why you thought it was important to write about it. Okay. Um, well, yeah, the book sees making as being part of a kind of continuum. As you say, people have been making stuff for many thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people talk about web 2.0 as if it's kind of prompted this, uh, sort of massive explosion of creativity, which it has, but it's sometimes written about as if like nobody was creative before, and suddenly, suddenly they've got the opportunity to to create and express themselves, and it, it's sort of seen as being a, a sort of revolutionary step change in in what people are all about. And basically, I'm excited about all of that. I do think that the internet enables people to make stuff, and in particular, to share stuff in a way which they really couldn't do before. It's extremely difficult to do before, so difficult that it sort of wasn't worth bothering. Um, but it, it does make a huge difference. But at the same time, I wanted to show that people are creative and have been creative for a long time and that what we see online is part of a kind of continuity or a continuum uh, with what people have done in the past and also what people do offline as well. So I don't want to take creativity as being a purely online phenomenon. Uh, creativity is a thing that people do and sometimes they do it online and they share it online sometimes they do it offline and they share it online sometimes they do it offline and they don't have anything to do with the online world but there's these are all parts of the same thing that's what i was trying to look at so creativity existed before tim berners lee in the mid 90s <laughs> yeah <laughs> early in but the tim book... berners lee was enormously useful you know he was a... <laughs> yeah. 
I, I have a thing in that I wrote in a book called Web Studies that I wrote that came out in 2000, um, which, which talked about how when I was a student, I did a fanzine and uh, basically making it, making the fanzine itself was all quite good fun and getting it produced by giving some money to a printer who produced it and churned out a thousand copies. That was quite straightforward too, but getting it distributed was incredibly difficult. Um, cause I'd have to like physically tour around list these different bookshops and, and places where there were gigs and stuff, just trying to get people to be willing to sell it, which was quite difficult in itself. Um, then you'd have to leave the stuff with them. Then they might sell it, and then you still have to sort of go back to them and somehow get some money back off them for the stuff they previously sold. It was a nightmare. Um, and basically, I blame Tim Berners-Lee for not having invented the World Wide Web about three or four years earlier. He only needed to have done it three or four years earlier. It would have saved me hours and hours, probably adding up to weeks and months of my time, just trying to flog a copy of um, a fanzine, basically. <laughs> and I blame him. You can add me to the tribe of, of haters on that note. He should have done that <laughs> much earlier in his career. Um, we don't hate him. We love him. Just wish he'd started a bit earlier for purely selfish reasons. Exactly. Um, so early in the book, you talk about the meaning of making things digitally. And you talk about what seems like a widespread misperception about making something with your hands and making something online being often thought of as opposites or... Uh the online version is being less real or, or meaningful is, is making things online actually part of the artisans craft process traditionally held by less digital art forms. Um, well, obviously they're, they're different kind of things when you're making stuff with your hands, it's a very physical kind of activity. You can see it growing, uh, you know, you sort of really directly shape it with the movements of your body. Whereas you, when you're making something on a computer, well then, you know, if somebody was looking at you, they would just see a person typing or a person clicking their mouse or whatever or making gestures on a screen. It looks different. It's a different kind of experience. But again, I'm seeing them as being two parts of, of the same kind of thing. So when I started making off making websites, um, I, I did it in Notepad. You know, there's a little program in Windows called Notepad where you yep. literally just type code and that's all it does. It just takes plain text code. Um, and that seemed to me a very direct personal hands-on way of sort of stitching together a website you really had to understand how a website was made and to be able to put together the different parts and it seemed very much like other things like knitting or building in lego or or woodwork even though an observer would think they're quite different because the technological is seen as being so different if you're tapping away at keys compared to physical activity but i saw it as being again part of the same kind of process and a different way of people expressing themselves a different way of making things but still about a person having to sort of stitch stuff together to make something new and since the days of having to type your html into notepad then obviously there's there's more sophisticated tools where you can put together a, a website with on a sort of what you see is what you get interface and um, but nevertheless even then it's still part of sort of putting together materials in a new way to make something new so i don't see it as being completely different to more straightforward hands-on kind of creativity even though some people like to create that divide between the digital and the non-digital as if it's a really strict difference so you can still be creative even though you're using a pc oh of course <laughs> i mean we know that anyway but i was trying to make a, a more subtle point about the actual process of putting stuff together i suppose making uh, some, making something i couldn't help but put a jab in there at, at notepad from back in the day 
<laughs> so one of my favorite and most useful parts of the book for me is when you cover the values of uh, connecting digitally in the form of social capital and how social capital affects online communities. Uh-huh. And through our marketing agency, we often struggle with clients to get them to sort of embrace the value of social capital for business and the subsequent commitment that goes along with building social capital online for your business. Uh-huh. And in the chapter, and I'm quoting you now, you say, uh, social capital started life as a metaphorical, metaphorical mirror of financial capital, just as a supply of money can enable you to do things that you otherwise could not do. A stock of social relationships will also make it easier to do things that otherwise you could not do. These mm-hmm. relationships are central to the smooth running of a society. How essential or not do you think it is for 21st century business to embrace concepts like social capital as it relates to a healthy business ecosystem? Mm. I'm primarily talking about it as being just good for people um, because having connections with other people means you can do more stuff that you want to do. But then uh, that obviously connects perfectly well with businesses as well. Having a better set of relationships with other businesses and other people means that they're more able to do the kind of stuff that they want to do. Um, That sounds really broad and vague, doesn't it? But it Mm -hmm. varies so much between different kinds of business or different kinds of enterprise. But people are often wanting to to spread the word, to convey a message about what they do, um, to get people to help them along the journey, which may be in terms of some kinds of mutual support, or it may be in terms of advice, or it may be in terms of other business-to-business transactions. Um, but it all rests on having good connections with other you know, people, basically. It's always people in the end, even, isn't it? Even if it's a business, it's represented by human beings. Um, and obviously, when I wrote the book, um, Twitter Twitter was growing. Twitter existed at that point um, and was getting bigger. But like today, you really think about Twitter in this context as a great way of creating connections between people and a great way of connecting creating connections between people and businesses and brands but as you know it needs to be handled really carefully because there's all kind of crass ways in which brands try to reach out to people um and they don't always work it needs to be about meaningful connections only this morning i was moaning on twitter about those those businesses which just put out tweets going um to retweet us and get the chance to win an ipad or win a handbag or that kind of thing um and yeah, they're they not really like a using constant so- stream of of news releases that they just fire out every hour. Yeah, yeah, that too. Uh, I'm sort of talking about the thing where they try to sort of persuade people to do stuff because then they'll get a prize. And and I think if you're a good business who's doing good, well, then people will say positive things about you online because they think you're good. Um, and that's much better than them saying positive things about you or liking you on Facebook just because they want to win an iPad. Um, I'm so glad it that you should said be about that. meaningful relationships. Sorry. Yeah, I'm so glad that you said that. There's actually a huge sort of debate going on in our in our community here in London, Ontario, Canada, about that very thing. Where, you know, as marketers, we're we're trying to you know build brands and engage customers the best that we can, and th- there's all of this activity going on that's sort of this false metric around having you know a thousand likes on your page and all of these people will have a chance to win a prize and it's less about the value that the organization actually offers and more about this sort of gimmick based marketing that really doesn't have any uh, true value for the customer i don't think yeah 
no, exactly. Um, as I say, it needs to be about meaningful relationships because uh, you know you can buy Twitter followers, you can buy a thousand Twitter followers for a few bucks now, but um, it doesn't mean anything. Obviously, it's just pointless if these are these are kind of robot entities or non-existent entities. What you really want is a set of positive relationships that can get you to where you want to be, whatever that is. So speaking of the dark side, uh, most of the book holds up Web 2.0 or, or Web 2.0, as you put it, as a, as a good thing. And if, if our show is guilty of anything, it's, it's not being critical enough of the technology and the potential negative effects it has on our society. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. In your mm-hmm. research, what are some of the things you came across that we should keep in mind when thinking critically about the connected world we live in uh-huh. um well there's always a kind of double edge to social media because um on the one hand there's the argument the thing that i argue that enables people to be creative to make connections to express themselves and that's all good and you'd think that nobody would really argue with that so there's that point there then at the same time well then those big companies in particular you know google and facebook and the other ones um are most of the, you know, they're often, it's not the case for every single one, but mostly they're harvesting data about you, they're storing up data about you and your activity. They don't use it against you in a direct way, in a sense they don't care who you are, but they're still storing up loads and loads of data. Um, And this leads to a lot of critical writing about the kind of surveillance culture and the use of uh, people's creative time sort of turned into a commercial thing which makes these companies money. And without the creative efforts of all the people, then the companies wouldn't be making any money because they entirely rely on that. Um, So it's sort of like both of these things are true. On the one hand, you do get people having the opportunity to be creative and do all kinds of interesting stuff for free. And the price they pay is the point that happens at the same time that companies are able to exploit this. Um, In the academic world, when people tend to dwell on this negative point much, much more and tend to almost overlook or sort of take for granted the point about people being creative and making connections and expressing themselves. Um, I thought it was at least interesting to really explore that first point rather than just dwelling on the more the negative one, which I think in a sense is kind of obvious and people are aware of the fact that, for example, Google is storing a lot of data about you, but people are sort of okay with it. Mm-hmm. Um because it's always used in the aggregate, it's just used as sort of big data describing what people do, always used to target stuff to you as an internet user, which may be of use to you. Uh, I think most people aren't that worried about it as a negative, and they are quite excited about it as a positive, so I wanted to explore that positive side. Um, there's an interesting book by Jaron Lanier called You Are Not a Gadget, which talks about slightly more subtle things, which I thought was, in a way, more interesting. For example, he talks about the way in which Facebook forces people to sort of adopt template identities because there's a certain bunch of things that you fill in on Facebook, your marital status, details about where you've worked, what you like, what your age is, all of those different things. And it sort of reduces you in a sort of bureaucratic way to being uh, just like items on a form. And we know that in... In life, you do often have to fill in forms and put down little bits of information about yourself, but we never assume that that sort of explains the whole person. And his fear is that in Facebook, we all are happy to reduce ourselves to that and we don't even think about the meaning of people beyond that, which is probably an exaggerated concern, but I thought that was an interesting one. 
No, template identity. That that sounds really cool. It actually makes me think of um, a quote I read back in the day from Vint Cerf, who uh-huh. I think still the chief evangelist uh, at Google. Yeah. Uh, and basically was around when the web was born or the internet was born. But he said uh, something to the effect, uh, there is no privacy on the internet. Get over it. Uh, yeah. do, do you think that's true? And if you do, do you think it's a good thing? Um, it's certainly the case that, for example, our students are, um, it's not just that they're not really aware of the sort of detail of privacy settings on Facebook or the, the sort of detailed arguments about online privacy. It's much more that they don't really care. It's, they, it's not like they would be worried about privacy, but they're not aware of all kinds of technical kind of details and arguments. It's much more that they, they don't see it as an issue at all. Um, so in particular, there's this sort of younger generation that aren't so worried about these things, and it tends to be older people that are worried about these things. On the other hand, the older people believe that they're concerned about this for good reason, because... Uh, because it's kind of strange to not have boundaries around your life and to assume that companies can be sort of taking information about you and using it in particular ways which you're not especially aware of. Um, I tend to, I tend to think that the, there are some concerns on this one, but I really dislike it when it gets blown up to being the number one issue, so that all of the interesting conversations you could have about social media then just come back to this particular thing about privacy. Mm. Um, it's an issue, but it's an issue we can deal with, and I think people are more aware of it these days, and the producers of the tools are more aware of it these days. You know, Facebook's gone through a number of crises where they've had to make certain things much more explicit because there's been a kind of backlash. And uh, development of Facebook kind of proceeds through these eruptions and backlashes where they change something and people object and so they make it more explicit and then people think it's okay and it kind of develops like that so our sense of privacy is being broken down on the one hand but it's not it's not the one issue we have to focus on all the time in the concluding chapter you pull together a summary of sort of the five key principles that make up the book thanks for that by the way that helped a lot with my studies (laughs) Um, okay and I think it was the last two that particularly resonated with me. Um, you said a middle layer of creativity is social glue and making your mark and making the world your own. Can you just sort of elaborate a little bit on those two points for some of our listeners? Okay. Um, so um, the one about creativity is social glue is sort of the way in which now because we can not only make stuff within our lives, which people have done for a long time, but also because you can share it and make connections with people through being creative and through sharing the fruits of your creativity, which people are interested in, they're inspired by. It maybe prompts them to do something themselves, which then they share back, which then inspires you and so on. So it sort of builds into a sort of set of relationships. That is a way of tying people together. So it's it's sort of one step removed way of people connecting it's not just people connecting because they meet in a bar and they find each other interesting or attractive it's a way in which people are connected through the creative work that they do and they see someone's creative work and at first they don't know anything about the person that's made it but then they make connections with the person that's made it because you can see that online and you can inspire each other have conversations learn techniques all of that stuff so creativity itself starts to bond people together in a way that maybe could have happened before but was less likely to happen because it was 
harder to make those connections. You were less likely to find somebody interested in the particular thing that you were interested in and less able to develop conversations with those people. Um, that's all more straightforward now and so leads to a situation where it's easier to make those kind of relationships. And then about making your mark, it's about people being able to sort of imprint themselves on the world, in particular the media world, in a way that was incredibly difficult before. Because in the past, the media producers were big publishers, broadcasters, movie studios, basically people who had resources that cost millions of dollars. Um, and now, of course, it's a very obvious point, but it's a really striking thing that's happened in the past 10 or 20 years. Now people can make media materials and share them with people around the world, not always with millions of people, but potentially with millions of people. Um, and so they can really communicate and make their mark and get their message out there in a way that was literally impossible before or was incredibly unlikely before. And that's such a big change. Um, the students that I teach, of course, they've, they've basically grown up in that situation, so they find it less remarkable than I do. Um, but I'm only 41, and I find it to be an incredible change compared to the sort of media situation we had when I was a teenager. Um, and it's not just interesting to me because it's different to what I grew up with. I think it's interesting to me because of the opportunities it creates in the world and the exciting things that can now happen that before really couldn't happen. I think it was um, Seth Godin who eventually sort of convinced me, I guess, through reading his blog for a few years, that everyone is an artist. And uh -huh. I never really thought of myself before as an artist. Um what final advice can you offer those of us that might not yet be contributing to the making space online and perhaps even to those early adopters who have been making things since the web became a much more widespread phenomenon in the in the mid 90s uh-huh um i think we're now in a situation where people are in a sense required to be more entrepreneurial so if you if you want to do this, I mean, people can do whatever they want in their own lives, of course, but if you want to be making stuff and then sharing it with people and getting it noticed, you need to have a sort of more entrepreneurial side so you sort of actively do things that are going to lead to ha making connections with other people. Uh, to a certain extent, it's about self-promotion and sort of getting your message out there and getting it heard, which means you need to, you know, do things to try to get some attention and make connections, which I think is... It, it, that could be made to sound a bit sort of show-offy and egotistical, couldn't it? But I, I think of it as being basically a, a good thing where people are uh, put into a space where they then need to sort of uh, demonstrate what's interesting about their ideas. It's sort of like a marketplace of ideas, isn't it? Which maybe sounds a bit harsh on the one hand, but I think it's actually quite good because people sort of compete with their set of interesting ideas and the most interesting ideas often rise to the top. Sometimes some pretty stupid or banal ideas rise to the top as well. But, um, you know, you can sort those out for yourself or you can sort out the ones that you think are good. Other people might think that other ones are good. That's all fine. You can sort out things for yourself. You can sort of act as your own filter and use other people as filters and get access to a much broader range of interesting stuff, which is going to inspire uh, you. And... <laughs> And as I said, it's very different to what we had before. Another feature of what we had before was that everything was pretty homogenous and any bit of media had to be aimed at a potential audience of millions of people because that's, you know, you just wanted to talk to a lot of people at once. And now we don't need to be talking to a lot of people at once. You can just be talking to like 15 people who are incredibly interested in the one sort of thing that you're really enthusiastic about. And getting noticed by them is all you need to do to have some really fantastic conversations. So 
uh, I don't know about giving advice, but uh, it, it's all about sort of actively making connections with those people who are of interest to you and being quite focused about that, I suppose. So the point is not that you have to jump up and down in front of the whole world to get the whole world listening. Probably the whole world doesn't want to listen. But there are people in the world who probably do want to listen to what you've got to say and what you're interested in. And those people will be of interest to you as well. So just finding and developing and nurturing those connections is the really great thing that you can do that can really sort of change your whole experience of the world. A marketplace of ideas where the best rise to the top. That sounds like great advice to me, and it sounds like a, an ecosystem that I'd like to be a part of. Thanks <laughs> so much for being on the show today, David, and making time. Very much appreciated. Thank you, Jeff. I enjoyed it. Let listeners know where they can connect with you online. Um, well, on Twitter, I'm David Gauntlet, all one word. Or you can Google David Gauntlet, that's my name. Or you can Google Making is Connecting, that's the book that we've been talking about. A special thanks to our featured guest, author and professor David Gauntlet. His bio and resources can be found in our show notes section at webademic.org. <laughs> 